You're listening to the midweek edition of the 1208 Podcast. Welcome to a bit of a headache of a passage today in Genesis 14, and there's a few reasons this is a headache. One, uh, it's written in a way that like it kind of keeps interrupting itself, so it's kind of hard to just follow to read easily. Okay, so like had it been written like this today, an editor would have been like, ah, swap sentence three with sentence one, so that you know it. It, it reads a bit more casually. You don't have to think so hard. So you've got that. It's hard to read because of uh, you know, the way that it's written. It's also hard to read because you don't know any of these people. You don't know any of these locations. You are a modern person. Uh, at least if you're living in America, you're not thinking of where these places are at all. If I were to say to you, California, the people of California, you would have a people in mind You would have a state in mind, you would have a culture in mind, a way of thinking in mind, maybe the politics of that land in mind. If I say California, that's all there. But when I say uh, the places of of Elam and Goim and, and all these places, like they just don't really strike that bell, nor do the people there strike that bell. It's also hard to follow because... Uh, there's a bunch of kings listed throughout Genesis 14, and not only do you not know who these kings are, but most of these kings are actually have we have very little detail, if any at all, for any of them throughout history. Now, there's a few of them here and there that people think maybe we can. Uh, consider this person to be this king from this land and these ancient writings here and there. But altogether, we loosely have any explanation as to who these kings are. So they're, for you, they're nobodies who lived a long, 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 long time ago, but were somebodies at the time. So with all that, uh, this more or less reads like a genealogy. You know, you read a genealogy in the Bible and you tune out. You don't hear it. You might have even read every word, but you finish it. You're like, wait, what did I just read? Oh, I'm not going to read that again. Uh, you're about to listen to me read it. And honestly, you're probably going to tune out. You're not going to hear it. But here's the thing. When you zoom in, you see something very interesting. And it takes us back to the giants, which we've already talked about in the time of Noah and the Nephilim and the sons of God procreating with the daughters of men as Genesis 6 writes. So if you've been following with the podcast, maybe despite how confusing this may be to read and to listen to, maybe there's enough intrigue there to keep your attention, because this actually is quite interesting. It's going to take us into other parts of the Bible to to show us a, a bigger worldview that the Bible has here. Okay, Genesis 14. In the, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar... Ariok, king of Elisar, Chedalamar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shimber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, 
that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtaroth Karnaim, and Zuzim and Ham, the Immim in Shava Ketharathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Inmishpat, that is, Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites, who were dwelling in Hazan Tamar. Okay, so uh, we will keep going in a little bit here. The story continues into characters we know, like Abraham and and Lot and all that. But first, let's just kind of assess the situation and state everything we just read with just layman's terms. Okay, so what's helpful in the English language is to read this in a, more of a readable way, where, where you put the verses in like uh, order of timeline, okay? So if you read verse 4, then 3, and then 5 through 7, you can more easily see what's happening. When you do that, you see that there's a guy named King Shadal Amar who's kind of like the king of kings in this area. He's a powerful guy, probably at the top. When some of the kings who are probably under him uh, get into war with King Shadal Amar, uh, some of the kings are fed up with him. They've been serving him or whatever they might be doing for, for 12 years, and now they've decided, five of them, are going to unify together and rise up a king, uh, against King Shadal Amar. But Shadal Amar has some kings that are still faithful to him. He has three kings who are faithful to him. So basically, war begins. In the 13th year, um, there is this war where five kings go to fight four kings. But Shadal Amar must be pretty powerful because even though he's a part of the army of four kings, it still looks like he's winning. Okay, so that that shows us the war and what's going on here. But this is where the giants enter the picture because suddenly uh, in the 14th year, so now we've kind of fast-forwarded beyond this uprising and we're continuing to see Shalomar um, go and defeat more places. Through verses 5 through 7, we see him defeat the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Emim, the Horites, uh, as well as the Amalekites and the Amorites. Now, here's why that's important to the giants. These are all new people to us. We're not thinking giants at all. If you've been reading through Genesis, then when you think of giants, you think of the Nephilim, the people of renown, the, the giants that lived during the time of Noah. And since you're thinking of the Nephilim, you're like, if there's any other giants in the Bible, they too would be the Nephilim. And since the Nephilim are mentioned further down in the Bible in Numbers, you're like, all giants are Nephilim. But that's not the case. Since we don't pay attention to words like Rephaim, Zuzim, Amim, Amalekites, Amorites, we don't realize that the Bible paints them in a picture where they appear to be giants as well. Woo! 
All right, so let's take a look at these uh, people in the order that they're listed. First off, you have the Rephaim. Okay. Now, the Rephaim, uh, part of the ways that you can see in which they are giants is by fast-forwarding to Deuteronomy 3.11. In Deuteronomy 3.11, you come across the final Rephaim. He's the last of the remnant of this race. And uh, this particular Rephaim is uh, King Og, okay? Now, King Og, he has a bed that is measured in the Bible. Uh, It's as large as nine cubits in length, four cubits in breadth, and that makes it six feet wide by 13 feet long. Go ahead and compare that with a king-size mattress today, which, you know, is meant for two people, and a king-size mattress is like almost, well, almost uh, six... 0.3 feet by 6.7 feet. So like this bed's huge. This last Rephaim, this King Og, is a ginormous giant. (laughs) And you know, just just to make this even crazier, that size of that bed, when we look at uh, some of the ancient records we have, there was a cultic bed in a ziggurat called Etamanaki, and that was the same size in cubits, the nine by four cubits. Uh, that specific ziggurat, uh, if you remember back when we talked about ziggurats at the Tower of Babel, we think that the Tower of Babel was a ziggurat. It was a, it was a temple with its tops in the heavens, which was a way to describe a ziggurat in Mesopotamia, which is exactly how the Bible describes the Tower of Babel. It had its top in the heavens. So, uh, Etamanaki, actually, believe it or not, is uh, most archaeologists today think that this Etamanaki uh, tower, this ziggurat they have found, is actually probably the Tower of Babel that's referred to in the Bible. If this is so, then you have your biblical writers saying, hey, you know that the nine by four uh, bed up in the ziggurat in Etamanaki, up in the ziggurat in the Tower of Babel. Yeah, people like the King of Og, these beings that were created from uh, spiritual beings having sex with human beings and creating these giants, those giants would, you know, kind of live as kings or almost maybe you'd say even be worshipped in these towers, these ziggurats. So you you might even see the Bible trying to like draw attention to this this guy, this King Og, this giant, being connected straight back to the Tower of Babel, to spiritual rebellion, to the whole giant narrative that's corrupted everything. So, you know, that's that's digging a little deeper. That's uh from the unseen realm from Michael Heiser. Uh, he, he points out those connections working off of some other scholars' work. Uh, but either way, we at least see, like, Og is the last Rephaim. He's a giant. Now, just as a side note, do understand that uh, Rephaim elsewhere can get uh, translated as dead spirits or shades. If you were to go to Isaiah 14.9, you see Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. 
That Hebrew word right there is actually refaim, that gets translated shades. So you also see this idea in uh, uh, the Bible that refaim are not just giants, but also evil spirits, or sorry, dead spirits, the shades of Sheol. Now, if you were to go into ancient Ugarit literature, you would see that in uh, Ugarit literature, Michael Heiser would say that uh, the Rephaim of Ugarit are not described as giants, rather they are quasi-divine dead warrior kings who inhabit the underworld, which is kind of what we just saw a little bit of a taste of in Isaiah, uh, as I just read. So um, you see the possibility that the Rephaim can also take on like this almost demonic feel. And this is probably what uh, the writers of Enoch uh, are working with, which we did that whole episode on Enoch, because Enoch talks about how like there once were giants in Noah's time, but when they died, they became evil spirits or demons, as uh, the Jews of Jesus' time would have seen them as. So it's kind of this combination of uh, this blend between evil spirits and giants. The uh, spirits of giants are evil spirits, and that's kind of where Enoch starts kind of blending together these thoughts of old and perhaps these different references to the Rephaim in the Bible itself. So... That's just a side note for you. Now, back on task. Uh, so far, we've seen that the Rephaim are giants, but this is not uh, the only time that we see the Rephaim pictured as giants in the Bible. If you were to go to Deuteronomy 2.10-11, through 11, uh, you hear about the land of Ar. And in the land of Ar, uh, you find, the Bible say, the Emim formerly lived there, a great a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim. But the Moabites call them Emim. All right, I know we're getting headaches here. But uh, first off, we just met a new character named the Anakim. Now, the Anakim, if you were to go to Numbers 13, 33, it says that... Uh, um, the sons of Anak come from the Nephilim. Therefore, uh, the Nephilim, as they grow and they have descendants, not every Nephilim is therefore called a Nephilim. They take on the names of their parents. So now you have the Anakim, who may not be called Nephilim, but are within the genetic line of giants, and the Bible recognizes that. So the Anakim are giants, right? We just... We just learned that. Therefore, we have to recognize that uh, the Bible saying uh, the Emim are as tall as the Anakim, so they're like giants, and the Anakim are counted as Rephaim, and, uh, but the Moabites call them Emim, which means like whether you're an Anakim, uh, an Emim, or a Rephaim, all of these are becoming words to refer to the giants. We're not just looking for the word Nephilim anymore. As the Nephilim have had children, they have now taken on new bloodlines that have created all kinds <laughs> of descendants. 
man, I just feel like I sound like a crazy person, but I'm literally quoting to you Bible passages. And unfortunately, it's not super easy to follow what I'm saying because there's just so many names and places to keep up with. And we're still not done. We just met the meme, all right? And since we're actually in Genesis 14, <laughs> Genesis 14 right now, recognize that in Genesis 14, 5, um, we see the Amim. So it's not just the Rephaim that King Shadalamar went and defeated, but it's also the Amim. Both of these we now recognize are giants. Uh, we can also recognize Zuzim is mentioned in Genesis 14, and we're like, okay, so it's the Zuzim giants. We would gather, if you were to go to Deuteronomy 2.20, uh, you would come across uh, a passage that um, mentions a race called the Zamzumim, <laughs> uh, which many people just kind of say, well, okay, so the Zamzumim, the closest other verse we have that sounds like that in the Bible would be the Zuzim. So these are probably the same people, just with kind of a different name. And if you go to Genesis, sorry, Deuteronomy 2.20, you see that the Zamzumim, um, lived in a land that the Rephaim formerly lived in. And uh, the Zamzumin were a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. So again, if the Zamzumin, Zamzumim and the, and the Zuzim are really the same kind of people group or within the same kind of descendants, then easily we see another connection back to the giants. All right, we have uh, three more races here. The Horites, the Amalekites, and the Amorites uh, were also conquered by King Chedolomar. So who are these? Are these giants? To answer that, we return back to Numbers 13, where we just met the Anakim, who were giants. And in doing that, we see not necessarily that the Amorites and the um, Amalekites are giants. We don't necessarily see that, but what we do see is that the Amorites and the Amalekites live in the land where giants live. Because in that well-known story in uh, Numbers 13, there's some spies sent out. One of them is named Caleb. They go and check out the land that is going to be a part of Israel's conquest. And while they're doing that, they come across the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, the Anakim, and they say, we feel like grasshoppers compared to them. In other words, they're saying like they're, they're really big. Uh, but they also say um, in 13, Numbers 13, 28, uh, the people who dwell in the land are strong. Cities are fortified and very large. And we saw the descendants of Anak there. And this is where it connects the Amalekites and the Amorites. It says, The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So, you know, like we know that some of these races are not giants, um, but they are all living among the land where they have seen giants, implying the possibility that there could be some corruption or you know, the possibility of interbreeding here between these different, uh, between the giants and humans in these lands. So, 
are the Amalekites and the Amorites, um, are they giants? No, not necessarily, but you could lump them into the possibility of there being something like that. Now, as for the Horites, uh, Michael Heiser would point out that these tribal groups are never themselves referred to as being unusually tall, though they surface in connection with giant clans in a number of other passages. So, actually, later you're going to see in Deuteronomy 2.12 that the Horites uh, um, were dispossessed by Esau when Esau took the land that uh, God gave to Esau. And since you're later going to see conquests between giant clans and uh, um, humanity, well, between giant clans and Israel, uh, you do kind of, in a sense, see the possibility of the Horites being in a giant-esque light since Esau, um, related to Israel, is going to dispossess them when God allows him to dispossess them, just like Israel will later dispossess the giants when God allows them to dispossess the giants. So there's a possible loose connection there. Now that we all have a headache and can't remember who's who, we return to the war (laughs) that started uh, between kings, okay? So just to remind ourselves, Shadalamar is the big king. All these other kings serve him, but then five kings get upset and rise up against him, leaving uh, Shadalamar and three other kings to go and attack these five. They've now gotten rid of the giants in the land, and now the scene is set for the war to continue in verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Shadalomar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Armraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. Now just in case you can't remember which kings are which, these are the ones that rose up against Chalamar. So the underdogs have just lost, and now they're fleeing, and they're also getting stuck in tar pits. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. 
Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Ashal and of Anir. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Shedalomar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anir, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Now, there have been some reasons given as to why Abram was afraid for the king of Sodom to be able to say that he had made Abram rich. Some would say that he didn't want anyone other than God to be able to say that uh, um, they had made him rich. Some say that Abram didn't want to be seen as like a mercenary because technically in taking out King Shalomar along with these other kings, he had uh, gone and done the work that uh, uh, the king of Sodom and these other four kings with the king of Sodom had tried to rise up to do. So it could look like he was a mercenary, which then, you know, might make the money look even, or the possessions that he had won in the spoils of war look even dirtier. There's been different uh, suggestions given. One that I might just throw in is, you know, I don't think Sodom and Gomorrah got bad overnight. <laughs> uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah that gets destroyed later by God, um, I I would wonder if uh, Abraham has just said, I've sworn to, to God Most High, I've made a solemn vow to Yahweh himself that I would not take a a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I wonder if that's like a, lest you should say, you of all people, yeah, we've heard of you. We know the things that you guys do over in your land. The last thing Yahweh wants is for me to be able to say, like, you guys made me rich. I I don't know if that's uh, plausible or not, but I would say that that would be a suggestion that I would throw in the ring because Sodom and Gomorrah didn't just become the place that they're envisioned in a few more chapters. They didn't become that overnight. Uh, and again, as we saw last week, Sodom and Gomorrah was already painted 
uh, in a negative light when Lot moved there in Genesis 13. So maybe we're still just continuing with that negativity. Either way, um, he the only things that Abram, Abraham kept were the food that they've eaten and a share of the men who, who went with him. So with all of that, we have now finished up a crazy story. And it's really crazy to me that Abraham wins this. I mean, let's be honest here. It it sounds pretty crazy, right? King Shadalamar has three kings with him, and I don't know if his army between the four of them was bigger than the armies of the five other kings, but they are painted as superior. Not only does King Shadalamar and his people go up against a the giant clans, but you also have him win all these battles against the giant clans and then also beat the five kings versus his four kings. And then suddenly Abraham, with 318 uh, trained men born in his house, which means they're, they're not slaves that he's purchased, but they're slaves who have been born within uh, the slaves that he already had. Uh, The JPS commentary says that that probably means that they were more like uh, committed to Abraham because they had been born and raised there, you know. Um, He takes his army of 318, whether that's uh, an actual uh, literal number or a representative number, he takes that army, he goes out, and he defeats this king of kings, he defeats this guy who's been fighting the giants successfully, he beats this guy who's defeated five other kings and their armies successfully, and then Abraham just shows up and like, yeah, I I beat you. <laughs> it's just, it's just kind of mind-blowing to, to look at that, that story in the light of everything that we've, we've learned today. So, even though you have a headache and you can't remember who's who and what's what, and you might even have to listen back through the podcast a few more times to sort that out, you now at least probably see a passage that was once kind of boring, kind of strange, and very difficult to read through in a much different light. So I hope that in some way, shape, or form, that is helpful in some way. All right, with that, we're going to wrap it up. Genesis 14 has been dense, but when we do come back, we are going to return to Genesis 14. Even though we've read the whole thing, we briefly met a guy named Melchizedek. And we didn't spend a lot of time talking about him, uh, but I do write about him in my book, The Rush and the Rest, because what we find out later is this guy is going to be likened to Jesus. And when we hear that, we're just like, why? (laughs) What on earth could the story that we read today, what on earth could that have to do with any connection to Jesus whatsoever? Well, it ends up being an analogy of sorts um, or a restoration of a a prior way of life, I I guess you might say. It's hard to even just give you a, a, a glimpse into it. All I can really say is, We'll get into it next week when we come back. Hey, uh, we were supposed to have an interview with Scott Smith, 
who ended up in uh, Jackson Prison um, with a life sentence uh, due to uh, sex addiction. Um, and then got out in just a few years, his life completely saved and restored and turned around and repented. Um, but, uh, I ran into some timing issues. Uh, so we hope to get him in here next week. Uh, so if we do, you'll hear from him then. And when we return to Genesis 14, whether it's next week or the following week, we'll continue with our story of Melchizedek. Okay, with that, have a good time resting your brain from today's episode, and we'll catch you soon.